is hell. We are very excited to have as our guest today anthropologist Alex Hinton, who wrote the Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Rights Dangerous Transphobia. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Alex L. Hinton. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alex. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This is exceptional writing, and uh, I'm very fascinated by your other books. Uh, Why Do They Kill Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide? All of your other books sound just absolutely fascinating. I have no idea how we haven't had you on the show before, because this is exactly the kind of stuff that we unfortunately cover here, or fortunately, I would say, uh, here on This Is Hell. You start by writing, The lights dim, trumpets sound, a rapid disco drumbeat begins to pulse around me, the Make America Great Again crowd leaps to their feet and dances in the aisles to YMCA, the Village People's 1978 hit classic. From experience, they know the song signals that former President Donald J. Trump will momentarily take the stage as the first speaker at the 2023 CPAC conference. That's the uh, Conservative Political Action Conference. And uh, but I cited, you know, uh, an encyclopedia of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender and queer culture. The lyrics of YMCA promote the virtues of the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA. However, in gay culture, from which the image and music of the village people came, the song was implicitly understood as celebrating YMCA's reputation as a popular cruising and hookup spot, particularly for the younger men to whom it was addressed. You add now as YMCA thunders in the cavernous hotel ballroom, I'm not sure what surprises me more. The fact that three nearby young men in blazers who have been hunched over their phones for hours have sprung to their feet, or the fact that a song many consider a gay anthem is being played for a group that is queer ambivalent at best and deeply transphobic at worst. What does that reveal to you about the crowd at the CPAC and their understanding of non-hetero culture when they are both homophobic and transphobic, yet their leader who holds those positions uses a gay anthem as his walk-up music. Are they ignorant about gay culture or in denial of it? Is this an attempt to co-opt it? Or is YMCA some sort of dog whistle turning the song into an anthem for homophobia? What does that reveal to you about the crowd at CPAC when the song that they're using as walk-up music for their keynote speaker is a gay anthem and he's just about to deliver a homophobic and transphobic address. Yeah, you know, that's it. And you asked a number of uh, a number of questions there. Uh, maybe to begin, I might just back up about, you know, how I, I arrived there and what I was sort of looking for. And then because I didn't really expect this totally. Um, so as you mentioned before, uh, you know, I have a book, uh, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S., uh, that followed uh, far-right extremists, white power actors, uh, sort of in the lead-up to uh, the last election. And in addition, you know, we had the insurrection, and the book sort of anticipated that. Um, but it took seriously this question of what's the likelihood of political violence and the targeting of specific groups. Um, but most of those groups that I was focused on at the time uh, were non-white groups um, in terms of how the uh, white power rhetorics were playing out. Um, so I've, you know, so we had the election, you know, for those who supported Biden, everybody, uh, you know, it's a sigh of relief. Um, but of course, this continued. And one thing that emerged from uh, the Capitol insurrection uh, and that was there, I have a chapter in my book on white genocide, was that the rhetoric of 
white genocide began to go mainstream uh, under the rubric of replacement. So that term was always there, but it was more from Europe. Um, but the so when the states, what was often called white genocide, everyone started talking about replacement. And as I'm sure uh, you and your listeners are all familiar with, uh, this is very mainstream. So the idea of uh, demographic replacement is now something that's mentioned by politicians, uh, you know, on on the right, but increasingly uh, in terms of the right, more to the center even. Um, Tucker Carlson notoriously invoked and continues now on Twitter to invoke white replacement ideas. So it's a long way of saying that I went to CPAC. <clears throat> oh, and I, you know, there's one more backdrop, a huge proportion of the people who participated in or supported the Capitol insurrection said one of their primary concerns was replacement. There have been a number of polls that have taken place uh, of Republicans in particular that say like half of people are concerned about replacement. So I went to CPAC in part to sort of see what people were talking about and how prominent uh, the idea of replacement would be. Um, you know, and I'd read about CPAC uh, for many years. Uh, I never expected to go there, but that's certainly ahead of the next election cycle is a good place to take the pulse um, of the conservative right. Uh, so when I got there, again, I wasn't thinking about of course, I was aware more broadly of attack uh, on uh, the transgender community, uh, the queer community, uh, and you know, within the field of genocide studies, um, people also are actually monitoring this in terms of what are called atrocity crimes, crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide, and ethnic cleansing, and taking some of the assessment tools uh, to measure what's going on, but it's not really at the foreground. So when I got there, almost from the get-go, well, it was. I went to uh, a preliminary session that was a training session for uh, conservative activists, uh, you know, and I'm there as an anthropologist listening in and almost immediately uh, gender pronoun jokes began to emerge. And the gender pronoun jokes were continuous. Almost every uh, speaker had to signal uh, their anti trans, uh, anti-queer community stance by invoking gender pronoun jokes. Matt Gates uh, even said something like, oh, uh, you know, why was the balloon? This was right around the time of uh, the balloon from China. He said, why did it take so long to shoot it down? Well, they were trying to go through the pronouns. Um, so this was nonstop. But also in that first training session, uh, immediately, uh, you know, one of the speakers said, well, I know what I'm a woman. I know what a woman is. And this was also a refrain uh, from, uh, so, you know, from the Supreme Court confirmation hearings uh, of uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Jackson. This was something that was also repeatedly invoked. Uh, there were other themes that emerged. China, you know, the attack on China was mentioned continuously, even as virtually nothing was said about Putin or Russia. And I thought because of the sort of conservatives uh, historically, anti-communism, there would be stuff said about Russia and Putin. But again, that plays a bit into the white power themes as well, because he's valorized uh, by the white power community uh, border. I was paying a lot of attention to that. And the border issue was about cartels primarily uh, and fentanyl. Fentanyl was a, you know, a primary thing and it came from China. It was being early on, it was shipped over and now it was being made by 
the drug cartels. And then one thing that was interesting in terms of the shift in replacement discourse is that, you know, quote unquote, illegal aliens, if we go back to 2018, 2019, with the notion of caravans, uh, the invasion, and of course, this with the El Paso shooting, uh, was one of the things where the manifesto of the shooter, he talked about, you know, I'm doing this because of uh, uh, invasion across the border. But, you know, it was interesting that, but people coming across the border themselves are now being portrayed, portrayed as victims of the cartels. The deep state was a nonstop theme. I knew woke would be a theme, but I thought it would focus more on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, tropes or critical race theory. But then, oh, and then the other one, before we get to where, you know, our topic, the other one was, uh, you know, quote unquote, American Marxism. Uh, and this is a longstanding motif uh, that goes back to the Frankfurt School, Adorno, the authoritarian personality studies they did. It's you know, I, we can talk about that history if you want, but it's basically recast to say that everyone on the left, you know, they're a bunch of communists uh, and they're trying to, uh, and Marxists, and they want to transform the U.S. into a uh, socialist state. But then again, you know, within all of that, suddenly the focus on uh, the LGBTQ community and uh, transgender in particular Oh, almost overwhelmed all the other topics. Uh, and I should just note that this plays back into and directly the replacement direct uh, discourse I was looking for, because the idea of replacement is, of course, demographic, uh, demographic decline. So birth rate decline. So within the long history um, of white power extremism and the notion of white genocide and replacement, you have the idea that if people, uh, you know, you have quote unquote race mixing, uh, but also any type of, um, of non heteronormative, uh, sex going on, it means that, you know, it's part of race suicide and the diminishment of the white race. And this plays back into the deep state conspiracy, which is a longstanding trope in many iterations of replacement uh discourse for uh jewish controlled actors and you think of all the attacks on soros for example uh who are trying to make this happen um so and the last thing i'll just sort of say if you went back to the buffalo mass shooting uh gendron the shooter you know in his his manifesto you know all this stuff is is there and was expressed uh the sort of notion of deep state conspiracy so what so what I got was, you know, more broadly, there were implicit replacement discourses there, but was really surprising and has continued to, uh, you know, of note since I was at CPAC is just this massive spike of anti-trans, especially animus uh, and transphobia. Uh, and if you, well, I, most people aren't following telegram accounts of uh, white power actors like I do, uh, but you can also, you know, with groups like the Proud Boys, just see this sharp spike in terms of their attention and focus on this issue. And so that's a long way of saying, uh, sort of our, you know, our initial discussion of this, that the uh, especially trans community uh, is definitely under threat um, and they're being targeted. And, uh, you know, we could have a really rough road uh, ahead of the next uh, election. So things are not looking good. Uh, I was surprised that Trump I wasn't totally surprised. I was somewhat surprised that Trump 
had as strong of a showing at CPAC as he did. Nikki Haley was almost booed off the stage. Um, but he's there. And, uh, you know, you signaled the opening uh, of the article, which comes from the end of CPAC right before Trump takes the stage. <clears throat> and, you know, I waited. And sure enough, pretty soon to compete with DeSantis, he began to uh, invoke transphobic language as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, it looks like we're ahead for, you know, the road is going to be rough on this issue uh, moving forward. You write that, indeed, many speakers at CPAC, a microcosm of the conservative right, have demonized transgender identity by drawing on two interrelated myths. Now, we're going to get to each one of these myths uh, in a little bit uh, separately. But first is that uh, gender is natural, and so by extension, transgender people are, are unnatural. The second maintains that transgender people as unnatural deviants are dangerous. These myths enable discrimination and hate speech that put transgender people increasingly at risk, as you write, and in the crosshairs of anti-trans commentators, legislators, and even extremists. Again, before we get to each one of those myths, is that the point of the myths and those who are spreading them to instigate discrimination, hate, and even violence, potentially deadly violence against those who are transgender? Because often the words used by the anti-trans crowd Sounded like lot like the calls you hear when you're hearing people call for crimes against humanity, like ethnic cleansing. So is that the point of these myths to instigate hate and even violence? Yeah, so that's a good question. And there's sort of two pieces of that puzzle. Um, the first one is that the goal of the people who are speaking, uh, you know, I, I think ultimately is power, political power. Right. They want to rev up the base. They want to get votes uh, and they want to be elected into office. And so this is now the issue, especially with, uh, you know, the huge number of conservatives, uh, including religious conservatives who are at CPAC. This is a way to rile up the base. So when I went to the activist training, uh, you know, that's what they were there for. And they referred to people in the audience uh, as you're all activists, you're grassroots actors. So they're there to motivate people um, in terms of direct animus, then by directing hostility onto those groups and inflaming it. Uh, they're also aware and some of them themselves may intentionally harbor animus uh, and want to, uh, you know, spark attacks on uh, the queer community and the trans community in particular. Um, but I think that sort of core of political power uh, is really something that historically has driven many uh, politicians, uh, Patrick Buchanan, Trump, so on and so forth. Um, so those two pieces go together, but one is not a complete explanation in and of itself. So how do we understand transphobia differently if we see this as about attaining political power more than it is about hate. I'm not trying to make it into a binary question of is this about po power or is this about hate more, but how do we understand it differently when instead of viewing this as a moment of spreading hatred, it's an attempt at political power? Yeah, well, it is. It's an attempt at political power that uses hate speech, which is something that uh, people all over the world use, political leaders, uh, 
you know, how do you rile people up? You create a other, you create someone who's different, uh, who you portray as unnatural, as dangerous, exactly as uh, happened and is happening uh, with attacks on, in particular, the trans community. Uh, and you mobilize people to act. It's hate speech. Um, but the attribution of, of motive to the leaders who are doing this, you know, is related to, but also potentially diverges somewhat from the people who are carrying out attacks. So if you go back to Trump saying, proud boy, stand back and, you know, be ready. And then when you have the Oath Keepers, uh, the proud boys, a uh, number of uh, far-right extremist groups who are active and they're assaulting the Capitol, they're out to, right, to do harm. The leaders themselves are using hate speech to incite it, but the attribution of, you know, sort of their many motives for why they're doing it, uh, it's too easy to just say, you know, they're doing it solely because uh, they're evil or they hate members of the trans community. They have, like all of us, they have multiple motives. And one of their motives, what they're trying to do is to rile up the base and to direct that anger onto a different group. I mean, it's a tried and true formula that's used all the time. Uh, so it's not really a, anyways, it's not something that's strange. We always have to remember that perpetration and attacks on groups are organized on a systemic level. And we have to examine how people who are political influencers who use in this case, uh, or in the case of you know my book, uh, white power dog whistles or anti-trans dog whistles, you know, they know what they're doing. Um, so the head of, you know, just as a small diversion, the head of CPAC, uh, you know, right before the conference took place, it broke that uh, it was alleged that he had fondled a male, uh, one of Herschel Walker's male staffers. And so this case kind of broke out and the head of CPAC is married. Uh, and so this was in the backdrop of everything. So you also can have this paradoxical thing where someone, uh, you know, who himself, assuming these allegations are true, uh, maybe bisexual uh, or queer as well, uh, is still directing attacks. So now we actually have a group called Gays Against Groomers. And you can sort of see where that goes because you ha do have, uh, you know, like log cabin Republicans. Uh, and they occupy a very uneasy position. And so what they're doing is they're trying to divert away onto within the larger LGBTQ plus community onto one particular group to direct the animus away from them. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't want to overly complicate things, but it's important to see that there's a political calculus that goes into us just as it does with different forms of white power extremism. Did you get the sense, and because as you were pointing out earlier, you know, you would have thought that things like China, the border, immigrants, radical left Marxists, the woke, uh, the deep state, all these things that they've been talking about, the right has been talking about, the Republican Party has been talking about over the last eight to 10 years. Uh, you know, did you get a sense, all those things that you would think would be more important, that that would have, been, would have been the priority in a keynote speech. Did you get the sense then at the heart of the Republican Party campaign in 2024 at all levels of governance, whether it's president or senators or representatives or even state officials, that at the heart of the 2024 campaign for the Republican Party is going to be fear of transgender people. Did you get that feeling that that's going to be their that, main message? 
Yeah, I mean, among their main messages, it's the one that's surging right now. So, you know, going into the conference, I thought that uh, race would be more of an inflection in terms of critical race theory and DEI, as I mentioned before. So within the sort of quote unquote woke wars is the, is are continually being uh, foregrounded. The one that the shift that's taken place is that while people are still obviously talking about critical race theory, uh, DEI issues, issue especially with the anti-trans, transphobic rhetoric, that's the one that's just ballooning up at the moment. And, uh, you know, I expect it to be a steady course because who does it in particular appeal to? Religious conservatives who are a big part of the voting base, especially in primaries. So maybe there'll be a shift after the primaries, but this is certainly an issue that everyone's going to be playing on, uh, you know, who's most of the people who have a legitimate shot, in particular Trump and DeSantis, uh, as we move forward through the primary season. Uh, what happens after we get into the general election? Uh, you know, there could be another shift. But th I don't think that the uh, animus towards the trans community is going to go anywhere. Uh, it's going to remain front and center uh, because it's going to motivate lots of voters and politicians uh, on the right know that. Uh, and they're going to try and get pe people out to vote. You write that the anti-trans attacks were present from the start of CPAC. The kickoff session was led by women from the Leadership Institute, a conservative organization that was trained over 250,000 people in political activism. When one mentioned drag queen story time at a school, the crowd booed. Seizing the moment, the speaker declared, I got a science degree. I know what a woman is. The crowd cheered. Is the idea, this is just one of the myths that I want to uh, have you help us understand is the idea then that gender is binary has always been binary that gender is limited to either male or female is that a new idea is that a new idea that gender is not binary that gender is something other than what we think of as only male or female because a lot of people that i've talked to said i never heard about this when i was a kid so this must be something brand new is this a new idea yeah no that that's a great question um we're sort of moving into more broadly the way human beings think about difference so we're back to sort of constructing an enemy uh someone who's different um so again Historically, uh, categories like race are predicated upon perceived biological or perceived natural differences. So race, obviously, for, uh, you know, was invented, uh, in a sense, the notion of biological race to legitimate uh, enslavement. Uh, and it was linked to conceptions, again, that uh, race was natural, there were natural that, uh, you know, the black community were inferior, uh, you know, their inferiority legitimated their enslavement, uh, and that in addition, they were dangerous and a threat. And therefore, uh, you had to mobilize uh, sort of the security apparatus against them. That line of thinking, as you mentioned before, is exactly the same thing operates in terms of uh, sex and gender. So, Again, sex is also a variable category, but often plays out in terms of the categories of male and female um, express biological differences. Gender uh, is the 
tablet of cultural understandings that are sort of written upon perceive these perceived biological differences. Uh, so you may have, and again, the, the thing about biological sex itself, there's some variation uh, in that, but we'll set that aside. But you have the difference between male and female, and then you have the gender categories of men and women that are written onto that. Those categories, of course, if you just, anyone who speaks another language can also think about language and how those terms vary through language. Uh, we can go back in history and we can think about gender roles and gender conceptions and how they've changed. So those are illustrations of how gender, before we get to your the sort of heart of your question, how they vary. So almost everyone can have that understanding of variation through time uh, and also across place in terms of different parts of the world. If we look at that variation, both historically uh, and cross-culturally, people read the alignment that often is operative in English in the U.S. of a correlation between male and female mapping onto uh, male and female mapping onto men and women. But that's not the case. There, for example, are all, uh, indigenous communities have third genders. Uh, you have all sorts of variation, uh, you know, that exists around the world. Uh, and even within the United States, well, that may be the sort of mainstream conception, just like notion that most people, uh, many people, I would say probably most people believe that actually race is a natural category and not a socially constructed category. Um, but again, if you look historically, if you look comparatively at the record, uh, simply not the case. If you go, for example, to Brazil, there are like uh, 30 different ways of categorizing what we call race. Uh, so this part of, in terms of anthropology, uh, what we do is looking at the historical record, at the cross-cultural record, to sort of throw into question different assumptions. Um, so linked to this then is power in the sense that you have social systems that promote through ideology, through education, ways of thinking about difference. And so for a long time in the U.S., right, the system was very mobilized uh, to portray both race and gender in these naturalized sorts of ways. <clears throat> in both respects, that's begun to uh, shift dramatically. Um, and that's sort of the moment we're in where suddenly uh, these sort of notions of that are ideologically, educationally, uh, people are socialized into uh, are being uh, sort of the ground shifted under them. And people are saying that there are many different ways to think about uh, gender and not just, uh, you know, sort of one way, the sort of dominant uh, model that exists. And you write of the two myths, you write the first is gender is natural, so transgender people are unnatural. And you add this myth conflates the critical distinction between sex and gender. Is the confusion, is the conflation of sex and gender intentional in order to give people a misunderstanding of what gender is? Yeah, it's both intentional and it plays, it's important to underscore this, it plays into what in academia and anthropology they call folk conceptions, but it's our everyday understanding. So, and I'm purposely trying to make the link between race uh, and gender because most people are now much more familiar with the problems with invoking categories of race, maybe not as aware of that the same logic works with gender. 
Um, but if you look at race, why do people think their biological differences are natural? Well, skin color, everybody can sort of see skin color. And again, we're sort of setting aside histories of education uh, and socialization in the same way uh, that the CPAC speakers talked about it. Well, you know, the speakers would literally say, well, look at me, I'm a man. Isn't it obvious? So it's the sort of surface level understandings, but the easiest ones for people to tap into. So that's why these naturalized categories uh, are so difficult to um, to render, to make people think about them in more complex ways. Uh, and this is where we take into the dive, uh, you know, sort of looking at history and the way that these categories vary. Um, you know, and these are the sort of the sort of deeper understanding that we need to combat uh, ideologies that demonize uh, other groups of people. Uh, as has gone on with race, continues to go on with race, but is now especially going on with transgender people. We are speaking. And I should add, I'm sorry, many, many people, many people, in, you know, in the U.S., if you went back five years ago, three years ago, maybe one year ago, were not very familiar at all with transgender people. But now everybody is. And then you have the thing where you have, as you read, the drag uh, drag queen story hour, people are sort of say, well, those are transgender people. But of course, you know, people who are in drag are not necessarily transgender. They're performing a gender role. Uh, and so all of this is kind of murky and complicated. And so what human beings do is we go with the sort of simple uh, thing that we can see that seems obvious uh, when in fact, and that's why it's often the ground of very pernicious uh, ideologies uh, and political manipulation like we have going on now uh, with the anti-trans uh, rhetoric. Because what seems obvious isn't always the truth. We are speaking with anthropologist Alex Hinton, who wrote the Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Right's Dangerous Transphobia. You write that around the world, people understand gender in different ways. Some societies have a third gender, such as hijras in India, while many Native American communities have a gender status called two-spirit. Yet others view themselves as non-binary. Gender conceptions also intersect with systems of power such as colonialism and patriarchy. How do conceptions of gender conceptions intersect with colonialism and patriarchy? Is colonialism the imposition by imperial powers of not only their own religion and culture, but also of their understanding of gender? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it can be both. Uh, again, because people are mobilizing. When I said before, that people are purposely, uh, you know, different influencers, political leaders are mobilizing this discourse because of trial up the base. That doesn't mean they don't believe it as well. And certainly some, maybe many do believe what they're saying, even as they're also aware that they can, you know, manipulate people uh, and galvanize action uh, by invoking these, uh, these naturalized tropes uh, about, in this case, uh, gender. But if you go back to, you know, if we go back to the founding of the U.S., if we go back to settler colonialism, uh, you know, the order that began was very much a, a white Protestant patriarchal uh, order. And that's historically through time. Uh, there's a through line uh, into the present, and that through line influences uh, gender roles as well as the racial categories that uh, sort of came online, especially 
uh, in the 1800s um, into the 1900s when the system of enslavement was really institutionalized. <clears throat> so, you know, that history of patriarchy influences uh, understandings now and gender roles. Um, and again, if we look at uh, colonialism in general, is that we have lots of continuities that uh, still exist. You know, when we have the George Floyd moment, uh, maybe it's continuing to some extent, <clears throat> but that was a moment where people suddenly began to talk about uh, structural racism. You know, I guarantee you the bulk of people and certainly students I teach, uh, many of them were not aware of structural racism or systemic racism, but suddenly, uh, you know, there came to be a much greater awareness about it. And so that was an example of an ideology that operates implicitly, that suddenly is made explicit and people will begin to think critically about it. Uh, and I think we're also maybe in a similar moment, though not with a significant uh, event like um, George Floyd, where people are beginning to think more critically uh, about gender categories. And so in the long term, we're in a sort of horrible phase but if you look five, 10 years down the road, you know, attitudes may very much uh, have changed and people may be much more accepting and may have more complex understandings of gender. Uh, but at the moment, we're in a really rocky phase. You write that the second myth holds that transgender people are deviant threats. One iteration of this myth centers on the conspiracist belief that LGBTQ plus people and their allies are grooming children to embrace queer and or transgender identities. If grooming is indoctrination, then we are groomed to be, among other things, patriotic Americans. We're groomed to be often Christians, we're groomed to be heterosexual, but that intense grooming we all experience doesn't work on everybody. How effective is indoctrination when it comes, whether it's on a daily basis or whether it's just every so often? Do people determine their gender, whether it's heterosexual or LGBTQ plus through indoctrination? Yeah, or indoctrination, socialization. Um, you know, the question is whether to what extent it's intentional versus implicit, um, but absolutely. Um, and this is where, in terms of education and in terms of the point of the uh, essay I wrote, uh, the idea is to get people to think critically about these issues. And so the counterpoint to indoctrination uh, and to patriotic socialization uh, in terms of any system that exists that tries to get us to think in certain sorts of ways, and those systems can be left, right, and center, you know, critical thinking uh, is the tool that we use uh, to unpack that and to get people to think more deeply uh, about these given issues. Um, so that's, you know, and that's kind of a irony is that uh, you have places like Hillsdale College um, that was behind the Trump uh, Patriotic American uh, Historical Commission. I can't remember the exact title of it um, that are talking about liberal arts education which ultimately is geared towards critical thinking, but in fact, in this case, is just sort of a socialization propaganda exercise. Uh, it's somewhat astounding. But maybe in the end, that's a point of convergence, something like an emphasis on critical thinking uh, that could bring together some people on the right and the left to have dialogue, um, because ultimately critical thinking itself is neutral. It's not politicized, right? It's a way to think and unpack categories. Um, that may be a different, uh, you know, this is hell. Maybe it's a way to 
get out of the hell a little bit uh, through some, some sort of dialogue like that. But uh, anyway, so this article, uh, as well as much of the writing I do, is about trying to critically unpack our assumptions and think more deeply about these issues. And you point out that at CPAC, the point was vividly illustrated when Daily Wire host Michael Knowles invoked the language of genocide. He stated transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. You describe how he used a derogatory term suggesting transgender identity as a condition. That is a health condition with certain characteristics or symptoms. By definition, a condition is addressed with a treatment. A treatment is something that healthcare providers do for their patients to control a health problem, lessen its symptoms or clear it up. Uh, Treatments can include medicine, therapy, surgery, or other approaches. A cure is when a treatment makes a health problem go away and it's not expected to come back. How is being transgender misunderstood as a condition that needs a treatment in order to be cured? What happens to our understanding or someone's understanding of being transgender when it is viewed as a kind of disease that can be fixed? Yeah, thanks. I, I cut out a little bit from part of what you were saying, but I got the, uh, you know, the gist of it. Um, so yeah, you know, this goes right back into what we've been talking about. Um, in terms of if you have, you know, historically, if you want to direct animus against a group, you say things like they're unnatural. And then, of course, if they're unnatural, they're deviant, and therefore they're a threat to the social order. Uh, Again, this is a straightforward uh, calculus that's been used historically and repeatedly. It's currently being used. If you go to Russia, for example, in terms of Putin's rhetoric, that's a different issue. but it's omnipresent. And this is one way it's playing out uh, in the U.S. at the moment. Um, So the, you know, so the invocations of deviance, therefore legitimate attacks, it legitimates uh, social legislation, political legislation that's going on. Uh, And unfortunately, this is the, uh, this is sort of the point we're at. Again, I lost part of your question in the middle. So if I didn't answer everything, uh, you know, please do uh, repeat it. Now, my question, I think you pretty much answered. I was just saying, how is being transgender okay. misunderstood as a condition that needs a treatment in order to be cured? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but it's important to underscore, as you just did, that the logic of this language of this hate speech taken to its extreme can lead to atrocity crimes, which I said, as I noted before, it's not just genocide, but for example, crimes against humanity. And Knowles, the person who made that comment, used the most extreme form of the language, but in doing so, he sort of showed what's in the backdrop, which is a sort of idea that this community uh, is deviant, it's a threat, and it needs to be eradicated. So, I mean, you, you point out that back at CPAC, the crowd roars as a voice bellows. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the next president of the United States, President Donald J. Trump. You then quote Trump saying, the most important battle in our lives is taking place right now, warning that sinister forces are trying to turn the United States into a lawless, open borders, crime-ridden, filthy communist nightmare. None of which is true, despite the fact that I wish some of it was, particularly open borders. Trump's campaigns are always based on fear, which is weird in what is supposedly the home of the brave. Why does fear 
work so well as a political campaign strategy from your studies in the past? And how sustainable is it? Oh, it's very, very sustainable. I mean, fear is, you know, you play into fear. It's like you're, it's the gasoline you set the fire with, right? You, you turn it on, you combust, um, you know, fear and grievance. Uh, if you look at the drivers of uh, U.S. politics recently, uh, Trump is a master of inflaming grievance and fear. Uh, and he has, you know, most people haven't sat through, you know, in this case, it was like an hour and 40 minute uh, Trump speech, but he's very effective in the way he does this. He shifts between sort of fiery language and folksy language. And he moves and he uses the two very effectively. Uh, but he knows how to inflame. He knows when to do it. And I think the uh, Capitol insurrection uh, was a clear illustration. But even the fact that in a presidential debate, he could tell a white power extremist group to be on standby to attack. Uh, you know, that that's it's nobody. Oddly, almost no one talks about that anymore. But the Proud Boys did attack. They heard, they got shirts uh, with his slogan, uh, you know, what he had said. Uh, so fear, grievance, uh, you know, it's, it's going to continue and it's going to be a driver in this election. Uh, and let's just hope that, uh, you know, the, the queer, but especially the transgender community in particular, uh, you know, don't suffer too much. I think they're definitely going to be uh, there's going to be, there already is a lot of harassment, and whether there are more attacks, it's probably quite likely. The right, is, as well as the people in the center, it's, it's bipartisan, I shouldn't just say the right, but uh, there is the primacy of individualism today under neoliberalism, which despite being reactionary, has bipartisan re uh, support. Does that clash with reactionary views on those who are LGBTQ+. Why is that individualism of choosing what your gender is not supported by the right? What does that reveal to you about their embrace of individualism? Well, it's strategic individualism. You know, it goes, if you look at states' rights, for example, the notion of states' rights are deployed strategically as well. It's when you have a political agenda, you invoke certain tropes, certain ways of speaking, certain issues uh, to be effective and to mobilize people. So it's, uh, again, it's part of a strategic calculus. Um, so for example, uh, let's say, uh, you know, DeSantis, it won't happen, but even, you know, Trump wins, what's gonna happen? Well, you're gonna move to have national legislation. You're not gonna talk about states' rights anymore. So again, it depends on where you are, what your objectives are. Uh, these things are very intentionally and strategically invoked. So to what extent do you think that the calls for violence against trans people are now verging on calls for genocide? Well, I would say, again, genocide is the sort of extreme that's implicit and made explicit by Knowles of this uh, sort of attack on the trans community. The fantasy of eliminating, eradicating the trans community is out there. It's not something. So if you think about, so one thing, if we go back to some of the far right language, there's a thing called the Overton window. 
Uh, there's a history to it, but the basic idea is that a goal of many uh, right-wing groups is to shift the boundaries of what's acceptable speech. So, you know, 10 years ago, talking about white genocide and replacement wasn't acceptable. Through the politicking, it has now become acceptable and it's almost mainstream. The idea of genocide against a group is normally something that's, you know, using genocidal language uh, about a group is usually something that's outside the boundaries of acceptable speech. Well, Knowles used it. He was attacked by people, uh, you know, on the left, uh, by scholars. Um, you know, I, I wrote against that as well. Um, but it's a lot of people defended him. He went on podcasts, different shows. He had people who were tweeting support. Um, so again, what's happened is what should be unacceptable speech at CPAC was turned into somewhat acceptable speech. And the danger is that this continues and it becomes like replacement now, something that's sort of an everyday, okay thing to talk about. So, you know, it's very dangerous, but just to have that idea out there as a possibility creates the possibility that it could happen. That possibility would require a lot of different steps. Um, but how many people would have ever predicted the capital insurrection? And more to the point, how many people have thought about what would have happened had A, the capital insurrection spread dramatically or B, the, uh, the results of the election been overturned. The, the situation at that time was extremely volatile uh, and we could have had, uh, you know, identity targeted violence that was taking place quite soon. Um, you know, we, we didn't get to that point, but that's an example of how language and ideas that are extreme in certain circumstances can potentially lead to things that would otherwise be unimaginable. One last question for you, Alex. We have been speaking with anthropologist Alex Hinton, who wrote the Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Right's Dangerous Transphobia. He's the author or editor of 17 books, including the award-winning Why Did They Kill Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide? His most recent books are It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the United States, Anthropological Witness, Lessons from the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, and Perpetrators, Encountering Humanity's Dark Side. You can follow Alex on Twitter, at Alex L. Hinton. One last question for you, Alex, and I promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Is all that matters to conservatives like those at the CPAC? that the Bible or current translations and interpretations are doggedly binary on gender. Is there any such thing as a biblical argument for non-binary gender? Because the closest I found is in Galatians 3.28 in one of the versions of the Bible, which says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So for transphobic conservatives, is all that matters, their interpretation and translation of their chosen version of the Bible, and is it just simply impossible to challenge that logic? No, it's not impossible to challenge the logic. And, you know, historically, as I said before, 
you know, sort of the way people think about things, they think critically, uh, you know, you go to the issue of same-sex marriage, right, which was unimaginable, and a lot of the same rhetorics are being that are being used uh, now, and a lot of the groups that are being that are mobilized against the uh, trans community um, at the moment were all mobilized against uh, same-sex marriage going back in time. And actually, Knowles, when he made that comment, explicitly referred to uh, you know, the right, the conservative right saying we continually fight against something. Then we sort of, you know, things shift and we say, well, that's okay, but we pick another issue. So, you know, they're aware of that. Absolutely. There can be change. Um, and again, you know, you think about scripture, what's foregrounded in any system of thought. So if you go to, uh, and again, I, I should just note that there are religious conservatives who support the transgender community, uh, but certainly there weren't many of them at CPAC. Um, the majority of uh, conservative, um, you know, Christian groups, uh, you know, are uneasy and dislike same-sex marriage uh, and transgender uh, issues and gender in general. So, you know, sort of A, there's hope, there can be change. But going back to the scripture, there's also this sort of dominant modality of indoctrination. And if we go back to your earlier question uh, about history, uh, colonial settler colonialism, uh, patriarchy, it's a longstanding one. Uh, it's really hard to, um, to change, but things do change. Um, you know, we had, uh, if we go back to 1619, Right. You think about enslavement, which really then got going uh, at the end of the 1600s. The vast majority of U.S. history and the uh, settler colonialism that predated it, right, had enslavement systematized and structuralized. It's only very recently that that changed, right? In the 1960s, you could argue uh, after the Civil War to, to an extent, but we had, of course, Jim Crow. So I, I would put it in the 1960s. Yeah, not much. If you sort of look historically at that time frame, the way we now think most people uh, think and talk about race often, there's been massive change. So I think, again, if you look at uh, religious conservatives and notions of gender and put it in the same sort of time scale, we can see there has been a lot of change. So, you know, as I said before, five, 10 years from now, I think we'll be in a different place. Um, but the problem is, uh, you know, getting to that place uh, could be really ugly and it could involve more attacks. Uh, you know, it could go in a different direction. Um, but I think in general, and if you look sort of shifting to a different related topic at the history of human rights. You know, we have the Universal Declaration, we have the 75th anniversary coming up, but the purview of human rights protections in general has dramatically expanded uh, since World War II. Uh, so, you know, in the, the longer term, I'm optimistic, and the short term, I'm pessimistic, uh, and I'm also alarmed. And I think we all need to be alarmed and to make sure that the more extreme situations and that sort of genocidal fantasy uh, that was expressed by the uh, by Knowles uh, at CPAC to make sure that nothing remotely resembling that takes place. Um, so maybe we're back to this is hell. I think we're in a this is hell moment, but hopefully things will be a little bit better, uh, you know, 10 years down the road. 
We have been speaking with anthropologist Alex Hinton, and I just want to say to everybody, listen, if you want to continue following this uh, conversation and this discussion and what Alex has been uh, witnessing at things at like CPAC, you got to follow him on Twitter at Alex L. Hinton, H-I-N-T-O-N. He is a fantastic follow when it comes to things like uh, transgender issues and the threats of violence, threats of political violence against citizens. Thank you so much for being on our show, Alex. This has really been a pleasure, and this is fantastic writing, and you know I'm going to annoy you in the future to have you back on. That would be terrific, and thanks so much for your show and for the invite. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Alex. Okay, you too. Thanks. Thanks. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Hey, guess who predicted the Capitol uh, insurrection? Who's that? That would be me. That would be you? Yeah, it wasn't a hard one to really figure <laughs> out after those guys showed up in, uh, you know, bulletproof vests and camouflage and rifles at the uh, state capitol in Michigan, and then while they were voting, (laughs) they were in the, uh, you know, in the, what do you call it, the theater-like, the the seating up above the legislators while the legislators were actually voting. Uh, Yeah, I thought that that was going to be a dry run for what was going to happen at the U.S. Capitol around, (laughs) you know, the time of the inauguration. I didn't think that was really hard to predict. Of course, it was only a few months beforehand. And if no other media outlet is going to witness the grief of the myths, misinformation, disinformation, and outright lies that reactionaries are claiming about those who are transgender, then I guess we have to. And if you feel like you learned something about the lives of transgender people from our conversation with Alex, and yet again you feel like you realize, yes, this is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10am Chicago time or you can show your support for completely listener supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support Will please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far This week's question from hell is how will you be celebrating Grimace's birthday and over on Facebook we have four responses Tom W. responds with a Molotov cocktail. That's a good one. I like that. They're delicious. Uh, Craig H. says, grimacing. (laughs) All right. Grown. (laughs) Well done. Uh, Riley C. Purple drank, rip, and sip. All right. (laughs) Uh, Carlos C. responds, by forcefully chaining him to a tree of the Willowney Forest in Atlanta, leaving the APD and Mayor Dickens to halt operations so as to not agitate their relationship with the Supreme Ruler, Ronald. (laughs) That's a really good answer to the question from hell. And our early leader as to who the winner will be. Any more? We're on Twitter. Three responses on Twitter. Hypocrite Reader responds, I actually observe Orthodox Grimace's birthday, which is 13 days later. That's great. Dan Kugler was mentioning that yesterday, and he said, so, but they're just doing it on the eve because it's 14 days, right, if you're Orthodox? It's Grimace's birthday eve. Uh, Woozle, by showering in a cubic yard's worth of grape gumdrops, dropped slowly at first and then faster over my naked body rolling around and said gumdrops and shouting praise be to thee one true god <laughs> wow wow right. bringing out the weird wow guess he was actually going to hell 
Probably <laughs> Woozle. <laughs> uh, and then Fred Bo. Oh, man. He said, I might have to celebrate with a corporate death burger. And there's a link to YouTube I don't dare click on on live radio. But, uh, I think it's a song oh, called Corporate song. Death Burger. Shall I play it? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so that's Facebook and Twitter. Okay, so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever this is Hell swag you want. You can check out all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to thisishellradio at gmail.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Will, what's Jeff up to again during this week's Moment of Truth? He delivers part two of his essay on overweight space-time. Sweet. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast with streams live every Thursday and his podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell should say it goes live this week on patreon during my weekly monologue i was going to talk about hate from a different perspective and that is the problem certainly being hate but how it is the result of misguided anger and i was going to reveal the source of that misguided anger that leads to hate but then i was likely then i was gifted likely with the worst most misleading analysis on the front page of this past Sunday's New York Times that I've seen in a long time. An analysis that, get this, ends up blaming what they now see as the failure of globalization on those damn Ruskies. Even claiming that the 30 years globalization, uh, that for 30 years globalization brought about world peace, prosperity, and stability. You know, like the peace of wars and Iraq and Afghanistan, the prosperity of the Great Recession and the stability of the gig economy and the decline in worker rights. And it was all great until those damn Ruskies invaded Ukraine. And I want to take a moment to thank the Times for doing everything they can to rekindle the Cold War that so many of their inside sources benefit from both politically and financially. Thanks, New York Times. Also on Patreon, Daniel Ellsberg, the man who released the Pentagon Papers passed away last week. Back in 2004, we spoke with Daniel, who I believe I refer to as Dan throughout the entire conversation. And I remember his answer to the uh, question from hell, something along the lines of, do you have any regrets? I remember his answer giving me intense goosebumps. Shortly after that talk, maybe a couple hours, I received an email from Daniel about our conversation saying, and where he says that, uh, uh, how all afternoon he could not stop thinking about some of the questions that we had asked. But we had a hard drive crash, and this was back when we didn't keep our emails on anything even resembling a cloud. So I asked if he could send something we could post at our website, an endorsement, if you will. And Daniel wrote, quote, I really enjoyed this program. The questions and comments were exceptionally provocative and stimulating, which made for an unusually interesting interview. So we will p play that apparently unusually interesting interview with Daniel Ellsberg 
during this week's Patreon podcast. But the only way you can hear me go off on what really must be part of a disinformation campaign at the New York Times when it comes to globalization and an unusually interesting interview with the late, great Daniel Ellsberg from back in 2004 is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. And I swear we had a second interview with Daniel Ellsberg, but we can't find it anywhere in our very unorganized vault of show recordings. But if we do, we will play that on the following Thursday's Patreon podcast. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word, giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts that are searchable, so you can put in words like Chomsky and see and get to listen to and have access to all seven of our interviews with Noam Chomsky. Or put in Howard Zinn. You can find all those as well. Chalmers Johnson. All sorts of great interviews in the past. They're all searchable, and you can find them in on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will be announcing this winner, this week's winner, and we'll be telling you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The Svelte Universe of Sarah Lee, Part 2. Last week I took up the burden of hubris to try to explain in even more non-science terms what I got out of an article from two scientists in their already simplified-for-the-lay-reader description of assembly theory. I should tell you, I sent my essay, both parts, to the scientists for confirmation from them that, uh, that they had no objection to it. One of them confirmed that my essay did not constitute plagiarism, but was in fact a good explanation, in my own words, of what they'd presented in their article, Time is an Object. The other signaled her tacit agreement by ignoring my email, which was one option I'd expressly offered them. Professor Lee Cronin, the Lee part of the Sarah Lee combined moniker had no problem with me presenting my essay on This Is Hell and said it was good. He told me he liked reading it, that it was an accessible and fun explanation with some good insights. Very kind of him, I thought. He's also the one who enlightened me via email that the Boltzmann brain had not been posited by Boltzmann himself, but by some wag or other poking fun at the idea that any complex structure, such as a brain or a universe, could arise from the random motion of particles spread out in a state of entropy. Assembly theory understands the evolution of matter in the early universe and from there into life as a process of selection taking place chronologically in a much more streamlined way than anything a random hit or miss development could attain. Because the universe is the size it is and not exponentially larger, the making of life was clearly something its building blocks had to learn to do and remember so they could replicate the process without causing the universe to bloat with trivial, failed, nonsense experiments. Living matter in the universe has memory inherent in it, 
at some point in cosmic history on at least one little planet. Guess which one? There was a phase change to a type of matter with a 15 or higher assembly index, meaning it took 15 or more steps of selective construction to come into being. 15 and up is the assembly index of life. Below that index, structures may still have developed by deep time-anchored learning, but they don't constitute life. At the moment matter reached an assembly index of 15 here on our planet, as far as we know, if nowhere else, the universe changed from lifeless chemistry to a life proliferator. All that memory or depth in time is time, and time is a physical aspect of all things, and time is expanding. The universe, where it contains life, physically embodies the learning time, or memory, by which life recreates itself. So, regarding time and what it is, the cosmos is not just stuff colliding creatively against a backdrop of Newtonian time, nor is it just heated particles in a room causing the arrow of time to emerge by using up its featureless asymmetry as it creatively reconfigures information, nor is it just things falling apart and coming together while rolling endlessly over wrinkles and dropping into wells in space-time embossed by mass. The universe is made up of the space-time steps it takes to select how it will continue to transform. The assembly number of a given structure is its assembly index combined with a function of the number of copies it reiterates of itself. This may be my own gloss on the theory, but I believe the overall assembly number of the universe is expanding in direct proportion to the increasing size of its aggregate self-knowledge. This is not to say we live in a pan-conscious universe, although I kind of think we do, but things like mass-produced man-made chemicals, computers, mechanical and electronic inventions, architectures, human languages, take up a great deal of space-time depth. They include in their space-time depth the time it took for humans to evolve. They all have measurable assembly indices, too, some more easily measured than others. Incidentally, I think this is what my late friend, language professor Paul Castella, probably meant when he said to me presciently that all languages are the same age. The universe is not just expanding in time and space, but in meaning and memory as well. Sarah Lee says, The size of the future increases with complexity. The configuration of the universe is not predetermined. It's only predictable once a given moment in its development manifests, meaning at any moment in its development, the universe's state will appear to have been inevitable, but only in retrospect. Hindsight is twenty-twenty. But the processes of chemical and biological and informational selection continue to develop. The future is complex and vast and unknowable until we get there, at which point it will seem surprising, yet inevitable, just like the ending of a good rom-com when the cat is released from the box unharmed. I like this theory and its description of time because 
I've never been satisfied with the dissipating thermodynamic model of the universe. It doesn't take into account the creative exploration of combining particles evident everywhere in the universe. It seems like an abdication to a physical process with a lot of specific limitations imposed on it. Assembly theory does a better job giving time an integral place in cosmology. I realize that's a lot. It's a lot for me, that's for sure. I'm just excited and happy that a couple of estranged sciences might be weaving themselves together in a harmonious way. May evolutionary biology and fundamental physics live happily ever after. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! So it's not Sarah Lee, the bass player from Gang of Four and the League of Gentlemen? No, okay. neither one. Okay, D different Sarah Lee. Also, I wanted to tell you that I was flipping stations the other day, and I decided just for a moment to stop on that not very good movie, Catch Me If You Can, with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio uh -huh, and Tom yeah, Hanks. Yeah. Dude, there is a scene in that that has the most Sarah Lee product placement you have ever <laughs> seen. They're greeted at a door by a woman who says, I just got out the Sarah Lee. And then she's inside and she goes, oh who, who, who doesn't like Sarah Lee? And then one of the agents says, I can't take, take my hands off Sarah Lee. I love Sarah Lee. It, oh my, uh, really? It's insane. <laughs> it's more than like the Budweiser product placement in Jaws, where all the bottles are constantly turned towards the camera so you can see the labels. It's, it's an intense product placement. So it's definitely wow. worth catching again if you want to... Uh, See that stupid. Hey, movie. speaking of product placement, I have a bone to pick with you. Yeah. So yesterday, Miliaku was going, What book was that that was written by David Graeber and David Wengro? Oh, what was it? I think I have it here somewhere. Yeah, she, she leaned over to go get it. What was it? She was looking was for the it? title, yeah. And you didn't say what the title was. I know, because it completely left my mind at that moment, <laughs> and I couldn't remember it. And I don't have a computer in front of me to go check it out. It's the dawn of the everything. Dawn the of dawn everything. of everything, see? The Will knows. Will actually read it, didn't you, Will? I am reading it. Oh, still it's reading it? I, I read it twice. You read it twice? Whoa. Yeah, I love it. Wow. You know stuff. what? You know, and, and you know what, Chuck? I'll trade you. Did you get your um, New York Review of Books uh, subscription yet? Yes. Did I send you the login yet? No, I would love the login. And in exchange for the login, I will send you a digital copy of The Dawn of Everything which you can read at your leisure. And one great thing about the digital copy is that you can look at it on your computer screen really big. And you can also click on the footnote number and it'll take you to the footnote and you can read the footnote. And there's a lot of footnotes and they're long. And then you can click again and go right back to where you were reading. That's amazing. Is this on I one of those things it. called a computer? It's sort of like a computer. I see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. I guess they call it a computer. Yeah, I'll send you the- I don't know this newfangled junk. I'll send you this, a New York uh, uh, Review of Books uh, login and password, and we just got a login and password, unbelievably, for a paper in Tallahassee from a listener. And I'll tell you about that next week because Ooh. we got something really- We got an, an amazing email from a listener, and we'll be telling people about that on Monday. All right, look, I got to go. All right. All right. Stay beautiful. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. How did that turn into a personal phone call? All of a sudden? Making plans I know. on the air. I know, really? Generous. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of stuff you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Good Lord, cut all that out for a year. Yeah, that's going. Uh, Will, please remind us, uh, what is this week's question from hell, and do we have any more responses? We do. This week's question from hell is, how will you be celebrating Grimace's birthday? And Discord has the last word this week. Um, Kim G., we broke up years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Oh, man. That's a great one. And then Ski Bro said eating whatever this is and then there's a grotesque comedy fake ad from a company called mcdonald's no d at the end and it's truly revolting drug listeners you should all go to the discord and and check it out because it it defies description (laughs) there you go thank you very much so the the answers i like the most were and help me in choosing a winner this week will um andy e saying that uh the way that he's celebrating grimace's birthday is bloated and ashamed (laughs) mark a saying responsibly like you just said kim g saying we broke up years ago Hypocrite reader saying I actually observe Orthodox Grimace's birthday, which is 13 days later. Tom W. saying with a Molotov cocktail. And Carlos Chavaria saying by forcefully chaining him to a tree at the Wheelawnee Forest in Atlanta, leaving the Atlanta Police Department and Mayor Dickens to halt operations on Cop City so as to not agitate their relationship with Supreme Ruler Ronald. So... What's your choice for this week's winner? I'm digging Carlos this Me week. too. Carlos, yeah. you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Congratulations. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want. From uh, What you can see is available at thisishell.com when you click on support. And we'll get it in the mail to you immediately. My answer to this week's question from hell. How will you be celebrating Grimace's birthday? The same way Grimace celebrates his birthday. And that is drunk, depressed, wondering what the hell I've done with my life. Thanks to everyone who sent in their answers to this week's question from hell. We have not confirmed a guest next for Monday's single show that we are doing next week. On Tuesday, I'm having surgery. So Monday, there's going to be a brand new show. And then we're going to be playing archived interviews on Tuesday and Wednesday, as well as during the week of July 4th. On Monday, there will be a live past inside the present with Sebastian Vupper. There will be a This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo, but Jeff Dorchin is not going to be doing a moment of truth for a couple of weeks as we are off. A huge thank you to all of this week's producers, Will Ippen, Dan Kugler, Kat Jarvanen. Thanks to Jeff, Ronaldo, Sebastian, and to Dan Hill, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I'll rant about what may be the worst analysis the New York Times has ever run on their front page. And we'll be sharing a 2004 interview with the late, great Daniel Ellsberg. No This Is Hell office hours tonight. Our weekly meet and greet that's really a drinking thing, which regularly happens on Wednesday evenings starting around 6 p.m., at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. However, due to my surgery next week, we are taking a break from office hours for a couple of weeks, returning on the 5th of July. 
If you have a hangover from the previous night's fireworks, come sober up with some alcohol at Carrie's Lounge. Wednesday, July 5th, and don't forget, in fact, write it down right now, and make plans to attend the This Is How 27th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and art opening of This Is Art, including live music, good food, a raffle, and like I said, an art opening happens on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon, running all day and night at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S-2251, West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. That's Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.